Hi. I want to see the hand again of somebody that knew where Fountainhead is. All right. I bet you know where South Tunnel is also. You know where Fountainhead is. Well, that's the big metropolitan area right out from Fountainhead. <laughs> big metropolitan area up near Portland, Tennessee, almost to the Kentucky line. And I'm so thankful that I'm here tonight for this opportunity to be with you and to have my wife with me and walk in and see my cousin Alberta out there. And what a great pleasure it is to see her and her family anytime. And very grateful for the opportunity to serve God by leading you in a study of spiritual matters, the Holy Scriptures. And the topic that we're going to discuss tonight is something that really will be personal with you. This is going to get personal because you do it, I'm assuming, every week, two or three, four times a week. And I'm talking about approaching the throne of God in worship. Let me take you back in history just a little bit. But back in the Old Testament, there's a, there's a passage of Scripture that is very sobering. It actually has, as I usually think of it to me personally, it has a chilling effect. If you will allow me to sort of modernize it, it's about a time when some men of God who had a responsibility of leading and worship came into a building like this. Now that would modernize it because actually they were going into the temple. And when they went in there, they went through the usual physical activities that were involved in worship as God had prescribed it for them back under the law given through Moses. But they reached a point where they had done it so much, they had done it for so long, that they got where they just did it without even thinking about what they were doing. And if they did think about it, it was sort of like, oh, well, here we go again. Let's do the same thing. We're going to sing the same songs, lead the same prayers, and have it, you know, that's modernizing it again because they would have been burning incense and offering sacrifices and so on. And God addressed them. And essentially what he said to them was, so you went there, you went in through the doors, you went through the exercises, but you didn't worship me. You approached it as if this is a real weariness. And God's reaction was, I will not accept it. His further reaction was, actually, I would rather you close the doors, just go on and leave and close the doors behind you and not even come back. If that's the way you're going to do it. Now, uh, you read Malachi chapters 1, 2, and 3, and you'll find 
essentially that that's what happened and what was said to those priests under that circumstance. Now, in your mind, you hit the fast-forward button, and zoom, here we are tonight in July of 2016. So we come into a building and we sing some of the same songs. The prayers are so routine at times, they're almost predictable. And we read the scriptures and we listen to the message And is it possible that whirling in our minds is the same weariness? Here we go again. And our hearts, our hearts are not really into it. And on the way out, you hear some of us saying things like, you know, I just didn't get anything out of that today. Now, what was his sermon about? The chilling, the sobering effect that I mentioned earlier to me is this. I hope God Almighty will never Look upon me as I depart from a place of worship and say about me what he said about them, and I quote God now, I don't have any pleasure in you. Worship is a privilege. Worship is an honor. Worship, properly done, scripturally done, in a way that God is pleased, takes effort. Now let's go back in time again, but just not back as far. Do you remember in the back of many of your Bibles, you have, you have those maps that will show a lot of different time periods in the history of the Bible record, and you'll see one of those that uh, it'll be a, a vertical map, and you'll have that land of Israel, and you'll have Judea, and then you have Samaria, and you have Galilee going northward with the Jordan River sort of as a boundary on the east side and the Mediterranean Sea as a boundary on the western side. Jerusalem was in Judea. Capernaum and other places that Jesus spent a lot of time was up in Galilee. But there was a moment in the life of Jesus in his ministry here on earth when the Bible records, Jesus had to go up to Galilee. And you see, that brought him into a situation that was 
shall we say, somewhat a hot topic during that time. Because to get up there, you go through Samaria. That's where the Samaritans lived. And I'm not going to take time tonight to go into the history of all of it, but let's just let it suffice to say, the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along. There was a lot of ill will between the two of them. Now, they would occasionally do business with one another, but they didn't choose to hang out and be friends. And they would, some of them would allow their bad relationships to get to the point they'd do anything to avoid even being with each other to the point that sometimes those that would be going from Judea up to Galilee would, rather than walk through the land, they'd go over to the Jordan River, go up on the east side, and then come back across the river rather than travel through that land. Pitiful. Jesus walked right through it. And it was in the middle of the day, and he got hot. He got tired. And he came to a a place that was well known then and is still marked in the Bible and is well known today if you are privileged to travel in the Bible land, assuming they're not fighting and shooting at each other that particular day, your guide will take you to a place called Jacob's Well. Jesus got to that well. His apostles went into a little town nearby to get some things for them to eat, and he was going to rest for a moment. Out of that little town, there came a woman. It was probably just an ordinary day for her. Shall I sort of presume that when she got up that morning, when she arose, she didn't think about it being any particularly special day, but little did she know what was going to happen later in that day. She came out there with some pots, and she's going to get some water out of Jacob's well. Jesus was there, and he said, Would you give me a drink? Would you give me some water? And she looked at him, and no doubt, according to the context, she could tell he wasn't a Samaritan. He was a Jew. No doubt he understood she was a Samaritan. And in that day and time, in that culture, in that situation between those two groups of people, for him to even engage her in a conversation would have been striking. But there was also that element that in that culture, Men didn't usually approach women and talk to them, especially those that it didn't know. She looked at him and she said, well, you don't even have anything to put water in. And again, to abbreviate the story and to facilitate our learning process here, I just simply summarize it in this way. That opened the door for a conversation between the two of them. Uh, about water. 
he told her, he said, I have some water that you can drink and never get thirsty again. And she said what you would say. She said, well, tell me about that. I want that water. But he wasn't talking about H2O. He wasn't talking about something that was liquid. He was talking about spiritual matters. He was talking about the thirst of the soul for something that would satisfy and you never be unsatisfied again. And again, it opened the door. And what ensued then got really serious. Because they began to discuss worship. She looked at him, she said, I perceive that thou art a prophet. How did she arrive at that? Well, here was a man who could tell her things about her, and she was a stranger to him, and yet he could tell her things about herself that she thought, how in the world does he know this? Because at one point he just said, you go get your husband and bring him and she said, I don't have a husband. And he said, you're, you're correct in saying you don't have a husband. You actually have had five, and the man you're with right now, you're not even, not even married to him. That's when she said, who am I talking to? This man has to be a prophet. And as they continued their discussion, and began to talk about worship. She made a reference to a nearby mountain. In fact, where Jacob's well is, is within eyesight, at least on a clear day, that you could see Mount Gerizim. And that was a mountain that the Samaritans considered to be sacred. All the way back to the days of Nehemiah. Long before this woman was alive, her forefathers had gone there to worship. A temple had been built there. That's where they went to worship. They came to understand that was the only place you could worship. You had to go to Mount Gerizim to worship. And she, recognizing him to be a Jew, and knowing about Jews and Judaism, she said, but now you think you have to go to Jerusalem to worship. And that's when he said, Ma'am, the time is coming, and now is, when neither in this place, Gerizim, or Jerusalem, will you worship. It won't be about a place. God is spirit. And they that worship him, must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And He said, that constitutes true worship. And that's who God is looking for.
Winchester, right here in this room tonight at Winchester. That's who God's looking for. He's looking for people who are true worshipers. Not the bored priest of Malachi's day. Open your Bibles to John chapter 4, the gospel according to John chapter 4, and I want you to read a couple of verses with me. <clears throat> when what you're going to read with me here is what I call a biblical profile of a true worshiper. That's what God's looking for. Who is that true worshiper? And you're going to see the biblical profile, the description of who that is. Now you read with me from verse 23. These are the words of Christ. But the hour cometh, <clears throat> and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now note carefully what is obvious here, what is revealed, revealed to us explicitly. First of all, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> first of all, Jesus said the words true and worshiper together, true worshiper. That's who God's looking for. But the true worshiper is not going to have to be at a particular place because God not being flesh and blood like you and me, but instead being spirit, he is, and this is beyond our finite mind's comprehension, he's everywhere all the time. And you can be out on Highway 64 headed east or west and you can worship God. And you can be in the backyard mowing grass and you can worship God. You can be anywhere at any time and it doesn't have to be in a particular building. We have buildings as places of assembly to simplify the matter and do it in an organized way that's decently in an order. But we don't have to be in this building to worship God. Go out there in the parking lot, sit on the asphalt, and there worship God. But when it's 99 degrees, we don't think that's possible. So it's not where we are. What is it, Jesus? Then he gives that profile. God is spirit. Are you listening? And they that worship him must worship in spirit, and in truth. The three things that are revealed to us there about the worshiper are these. The true worshiper is profiled here as somebody who's focused. He's mentally focused. He's getting his mind into worship. It's like a coach will tell the players, Get your mind in the game. Focus on what you're doing at this moment. And that's what's given here. The second thing is that that true worshiper is somebody who listens 
And third, that worshiper is somebody who thinks. Again, the mind. Let's, let's run through those three things and let me sort of illustrate them with us. When we worship as a true worshiper, God is the object of our worship. Not you, not me, or any minister. God is. On a Sunday, when you have more people, you go to the pulpit, you see an audience. There's a challenge there for every one of us who comprise that assembly to see the true audience. And that's God. We're before Him. And that conjures up this realization. When I come in and take a seat and I'm a part of the audience that's gathered, a part of the assembly. I'm not there to be the focus of it. I'm not there to be entertained. I'm not there to perform. When your preacher's in the pulpit, he's not performing before you. When the worship leader says we will now sing and he names the song or the number or maybe you project your songs but starts that song he's a leader of worship with the worship directed where? upward and outward Paul said in Ephesians 5 you sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord and you sing teaching and admonishing one another Colossians 3.16. But it's not a matter of the song director performing or the minister or the one leading in prayer performing. We are all in the presence of God, not performing as such, as much as we are pouring ourselves out before. I think sometimes and I just confess to you I think sometimes I have forgotten that a lot in worship. Put it into this frame of mind. Suppose this coming Sunday on the 24th and it's time for worship. As the worship begins with the first action, suppose 
that in whatever manner he chose to manifest himself, God would manifest himself with a voice out of heaven or some appearance, and he would look at you and say, Sing to me. How might you respond? I think with fear and trembling. I think you'd feel honored. Me? Sing to God? But brethren, that's what in reality we're doing. And when the song ends and he says, now talk to me. Tell me what's going on in your life. Not as if he doesn't know, because he does, but just like any father wants his child to talk to him, the father wants us to talk to him. And that's what prayer is. Worship is focus time. Focusing upon God and how we are solely, totally dependent upon Him. I'll come back to that in a moment. We'll tie it to another point. So the second part is that the true worshiper is depicted here as someone who thinks. In what way? How? How does, how does he think? Well, all right, to get our minds in that direction, let me ask you a question. Has God regulated worship? You can do your head like this. He has. Indeed he has. Now if God didn't do any regulation on worship, then worship would just be a wide open thing. We do what we want to do however we want to do it. And regrettably, that's the way some people approach worship. You see, there's a companion question. Is all or is every action of worship, is all worship acceptable unto God? No. The Lord has made it abundantly clear that that's not the case. Start with the first children. Cain, Abel, and Seth. And one of them's sacrifice was rejected because he didn't offer what God required. Look at the son of Aaron. Nadab and Abihu. They offered strange fire, fire for which they had no authority. They had a responsibility regarding an action of worship that involved fire at the altar, and they offered strange fire, and God struck them dead. Uh, that gets your attention and says, you better do what he tells you. You're not free to do it the way you want to do it. Jesus in Matthew chapter 15, and incidentally that scripture, of course, was Leviticus chapter 10. But in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus quoting from Isaiah said, In vain they do worship me, 
teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. He said, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So not every action is acceptable. Some worship can be vain, which obviously implies that there is worship that's not vain, and the part that's not vain is acceptable, but the vain part is unacceptable to God. God has made it clear that the only actions of worship that are acceptable to him is that which he has authorized. And the classic example of it to me is in 1 Samuel 15, when God told King Saul to go fight the Amalekites, and he told him, he told him, he said, you tell your soldiers not to bring back any spoil. And when they got through with the battle, they went around picking out everything that was really good and took it home. And when the prophet Samuel, the judge, held him accountable for it and said, why did you bring all of this back? Do you remember the lame excuse that Saul offered? He said, well, the people thought they'd offer that as a sacrifice unto God. Well, who could blame them for that? The answer is, as I'm saying tongue-in-cheek, God blamed them. Because he said, I didn't give you the authority to do this. I told you what to do with the spoil, and you disobeyed me. And he held Saul responsible because he was their leader. Not every action of worship that someone engages in is acceptable unto God, only that which God has authorized is acceptable. So indeed, worship has been regulated by God. Okay, now we're going to tie it back to the first point. Who's the focus of worship? God is. So who are we trying to please? It better be God. You want to know how serious this is? Who are you trying to please, yourself or God? And if you're going to try to please Him, then don't you think you might ought to find out, does He have something in mind? Has he told me what to do in worship? Indeed he has. So the true worshiper worships in spirit and in truth. The truth of God, the instructions of God. God has spoken and he's regulated it. And if I am a true worshiper, I'm going to go to his word and I'm going to find out what pleases him. What action does he want me to do? When does he want me to do it? How does he want me to do it? Why does he want me to do it? He's told us with the singing, the praying, the eating of the Lord's Supper, the contribution to do the work that he wants his people to do, and the teaching and preaching from God's Word. There is reason for it all, and God has explained it and how it's to be done. I ask again, are you listening? If that doesn't matter, then get out of here. Why are you even bothering to be here? You just go do what you want to do. Now maybe you think I'm too abrupt in this. But if you're not going to try to please God, then why even pretend? Just do what you want to do. But if indeed you're going to try to please God, you will first listen to God 
to follow his direction, his instruction. Third, the true worshiper thinks. That's that part of worshiping in spirit, his mind. Let me illustrate. Do you remember when the Apostle Paul talked about the eating of the unleavened bread and drinking the fruit of the vine? As the Lord had commissioned. And in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 29, he quoted the Lord saying, and you will recognize it, this do as oft as you eat or drink in memory of me. Now you tell me how you can do the Lord's Supper, how you can eat that unleavened bread and drink that fruit of the vine in memory of Christ and not have your mind on it. Do you suppose that the routine manner in which we eat the Lord's Supper sometimes with our minds elsewhere grieves the one who died for us? Do you suppose if he spoke he would say, you were doing that in memory of me and you're thinking about some ball game or where you're going to go this afternoon or something else in this world and you can't even take that few moments and picture me on a cross for you. Even the contribution. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Verse 7, every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful gift. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. When you do it that way, you don't sing, Oh Lord my God, how great thou art. When I'm awesome wonder, consider all the worlds you've made. No, you do it from your heart. It'll have a different sound. Oh Lord my God, how great thou art. I hear the rolling thunder. I see those star-filled skies. And I remember how you gave your son to 
for me. How great thou art. So here's your challenge, you see. I said it takes effort. Because, are you listening to me please? David Sane standing here right now tells you I know that song well enough I can sing it and not even think about a word in it. And I've eaten the Lord's Supper enough that I can do it every bit of it from beginning to end and not even think about what I'm doing. And I've prayed enough prayers in my life that I can pray them routinely and not even think. Want to join me in that confession? And then understand the need for the resolution to be a true worshiper. I'm focused on God. I'm doing it the best I can by His instruction, listening to Him and thinking. I might even find it necessary occasionally to say, Father, forgive me. My mind was wandering into the world right there. And it should have been on you. That's the lesson that Samaritan woman learned. doesn't matter whether you're Samaritan, whether you're Jew, whether you're old, young, rich, poor, it doesn't matter whether you're a Gentile or whoever you are. That's how you worship in the true sense that's acceptable to God so that when you leave, God in heaven thinks and looks at you Please me today. Let's pray about it. Father, this study and these thoughts have caused us all to really think. Forgive us of the times we've let our minds wander and not be focused upon you and upon your precious Son. Forgive us when we've gone through the actions without our hearts engaged. Help us to be true worshipers that please you and honor your Son and that draw us closer to you. When we leave assemblies like this, may you be pleased. This is our prayer.